Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger. He abounds in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Father, you've not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For your word says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your loving kindness towards those of us who fear you. You promised as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. And just like a father has compassion on his children, so you have compassion on those who fear you. Father, you know our frame. You're mindful that we are but dust. Father, we're thankful that we can pause in your presence on this Lord's day, that we have the opportunity to worship your name, all that it represents, all that you are. We ask in this hour as we worship through your word that we'd gird up our minds for action, that we would be alert, that the Spirit of God, the one who gave us this book, who inspired every single word, that he would help us to understand it and to apply it. Father, I pray for all those who will hear this message later on, many who have never met Jesus as Lord, may today be a turning point. May you use this message to show them their need. And for those of us who have crossed that line, help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Would you take God's word and turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and go to the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. We come to the, this morning to the very last and final message, the 31st message in this series that we began over a year ago. I know some of you thought it might take me until the end of the millennial reign of the Messiah to finish, but here we are. This is it, the end of this series on God's prophetic schedule. Now, while this may be the end of the series, this is not the end of the subject, because a third of Scripture is prophetic in nature, and because we teach through entire books of the Bible, God will repeatedly bring up this subject of His Son's return, because He wants to prepare us. He wants to help us. He wants us to be ready as His people to go to heaven in a way that's honorable to Him. Now, a number of you became believers during this series. Some of you joined the church, and so you've not heard all 30 messages. So I'm going to give you all 30 messages today, okay? So strap down your uh, pew belt and get ready as we work through the book of Revelation. We're going to go through the entire book, Lord willing. Now, the Revelation was written around 95 AD. God used the Apostle John to pen it. And these that we're going to begin with this morning here in chapter 22 represent the very last words Jesus spoke, even after those special appearances to the Apostle Paul. And so since this is the end of this series, I want to begin at the end of the Revelation, chapter 22, follow along, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. 
I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Now the very final words of Jesus ever spoken that we know of. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming, to which John responds, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all, amen. Now, we've seen over the last 13 months that one of the most neglected, misunderstood, and misrepresented subjects concerns Bible prophecy. Yet here in this last chapter, if you look down at verse 10 in your Bibles, John is both commanded and specifically instructed, instructed not, not to seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. John, what I want you to write is not to be hidden. It is to be revealed. It is to be learned. It is to uh, be applied. And of course, unlike Daniel's prophecy that was closed until the end of time, this prophecy was open for all of time. Why? Because the ascension of Jesus has taken place. And since the ascension of Jesus, Daniel can be understood in light of revelation. And since the ascension of Jesus, the Lord could come back at any moment. Nothing prophetically is ever needed to take place. And so back in chapter one, where we're going to begin this morning, Revelation chapter one and verse one, I want you to see how this great revelation opens. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. And because this is a unified content and described as revelation, there's no such book as the revelations, all right? Now, we may say in the South, 50 cent for 50 cents, and that's okay. But listen, there's no book called Revelations. This is a single unified revelation from beginning to end. The word is apocalypsis, and it means to unfold, to uncover, to reveal what was hidden. In fact, in some of our English Bibles, it's not at the top of chapter one called the book of Revelation. It's simply called the apocalypse. Remember, those book titles are not inspired. They're put there like chapter and verse divisions to help us find our way around. And so rather than be some closed book, which it is for so many people, God wants it to be an open book. He wants us to understand it. Look at verse four. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from those seven spirits who are before his throne. So the greeting here in the opening chapter is from him who is, who was, and who is to come, namely God the Father in the context, but also from the seven spirit before, before the throne, the sevenfold spirit, the living Bible renders it. And we know from Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 12, this is a reference to God the Holy Spirit because of his unique sevenfold ministry. And then in verse five, and from Jesus Christ, and so this letter is from the triune God. It's from God the Father, it's from God the Spirit, and from God the Son. But the emphasis in the book concerns God the Son. It's a revealing, it's an unfolding about Him who is termed here as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. 
And so he is highlighted because he is the hero of this book. He is termed here the firstborn of the dead. Now, if you know your Bibles and you know that five people were raised from the dead in the Old Testament and three were raised in the New Testament. But Jesus is the firstborn from the dead and that all those who are raised to life only to die again, Jesus was resurrected out of the grave. The firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Now notice Revelation 1 and verse 9. I, John, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's on this small, rocky, crescent-shaped island. Here's a picture of it. It's uh, next to the Aegean Sea. I've been there once. I went into the cave that tradition says John actually recorded the revelation. But nonetheless, it's on the uh, southwest coast uh, of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. It's about 10 miles long, 6 miles wide at its largest point. And of course, it was used by the Romans as a place for political prisoners. And so John is here because of his testimony, because he stood for Jesus. He's here banished to this island. And so while he's on Patmos suffering for the cause of Christ, the Bible also says he's in the spirit. He's on Patmos. He's at the University of Christian Persecution, I suppose you could say, but he's here in the spirit. Look at verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. So this happened on the Lord's Day, what we call Sunday. He's in the Spirit, and he hears this loud voice that's compared to the sound of a trumpet. And it belongs to the Alpha and the Omega, who has just been referenced in verse 8. It belongs to the first and to the last. And we learn in verse 17 that this is none less than the Lord Jesus himself, the beginning and the end. Now look at the command. It's unmistakable. We are told, he is told, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. These are literal churches. These do not represent seven epochs of time. These are seven literal churches that were in existence in the first century that in many ways represent every church across the planet. Here's a map showing the region where these seven churches lie in Turkey. And it's not by accident he writes to these seven churches. Maybe apart from Ephesus, some of those churches you don't recognize. I mean, why not write to the church at Rome or Corinth or Galatia. Why these seven churches? Because in these seven churches, you have a picture of every church. Every church in some way, shape, or form, for good or for bad, can identify with these seven churches. And so here's John. He is commanded to write to these seven churches and remind yourself, this is not John's revelation. This is God's revelation. And throughout time, the church has been studying this. Look at verse 13. John on the Lord's day hears this loud voice, and he turns around and he sees seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. So he sees Jesus standing in the middle of the churches. 
It's much like what we studied a few weeks back when we talked about the doctrine of the triune God from the Old Testament. God, on the one hand, is physically, literally present in the tabernacle. On the other hand, they're praying to him in heaven above. And while the Lord Jesus is omnipresent, he's everywhere as the eternal God, he's also standing in the midst of the churches. And by the way, for where two or three are gathered in his presence, he's here in his midst. Sometimes Christians will say, well, I just watch you on TV at home. Well, look, if you're sick and unable to come, that's a good thing. I'm glad you can benefit from it. But it's never a substitute if you are able to be with the people of God. While Jesus is everywhere, there's a special sense in which he is here. He's not out there this morning. He's in here. For where two or three are gathered in his name, his presence is here in a unique way. And so we are not to forsake our gathering together. And I'm not saying you can't meet him in a Bible study or in your prayer closet. But on the Lord's day, this is where God calls us to assemble. Now look at verses 14 to 18 as he continues to give us a picture of the glorified Messiah. Different from the picture when Jesus was in first round glorified body after the resurrection. This is so different because I don't think anyone could have stood to have embraced him in this body, but this is what he's like in heaven today. Look, his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the shining sun in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last And the living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. And just so we wouldn't mess the book up, this is one of the few books in all the Bible where God gives us the outline for the book here in verse 19, as this chart helps picture. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, that's the past, and the things which are, that's the present. And the things which will take place after these things, that's the future. So he writes about the past, about the exalted, glorified Christ that we will be able to embrace in our glorified body. Then he writes about the things that are present, the church age. That's the age we're in right now. God is building his church. And then future things, the consummation. And so in chapter one, he describes the past, chapters two and three, the present. And then chapter four, all the way through the end of the book, the future. And I have no doubt you could further subdivide the revelation, but God gave us this outline so we couldn't mess it up, lest we be all confused and discombobulated. And I think this outline is so helpful because it allows it to speak for itself without man manufacturing some uh, uh, interpretation that's not true to Scripture. Now, follow the introduction in the pro- following the introduction in the prologue that's found in the first eight verses, John then writes about the things that he had seen. And so he records what he had seen in heaven, this magnificent glorified Christ. And then in chapters two and three, he writes about the things that are, 
about seven churches that were literally functioning with pastors there in the first century, the things that are. Here's a map, by the way, of those seven churches so you can see them. Seven churches, kind of like a horseshoe. Church number one is Ephesus, a church that Paul spent more time at than any other church, three years, and it becomes the launching pad to plant all these other churches from which it spread. Now, Ephesus was extremely healthy at its start, but many years had gone by, decades, and now we would describe it as the formal church, and that while they are as doctrinally as straight as an arrow, they had lost their first love. Verse 4 says, you need your Bible. These aren't slides for this. I have this against you, that you have, lost, you have left your first love. And there are churches like that across the world today. They are doctrinally sound but they have lost their love and passion for Jesus. And churches are made up of individuals. And I suppose in every church, there's some aspect of these seven churches even sitting here today. Then if you go 35 miles up the road here in the map, you come to Smyrna. This is the fearful church because they came in under great persecution. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast you, cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. By the way, this is one of two churches in which there is no rebuke, only praise. And these were people who were willing to lay down their life for the cause of the gospel. And church history typically demonstrates that a church that is persecuted is a church that is strong. Tertullian said that the, the, the blood of the martyrs the, the, is the seed of the church. God uses persecution often to spread the church, to purify life, and to use those individuals within that assembly to preach the gospel. From there, you travel another 50 miles north of Smyrna to the church of Pergamum or Pergamos. You can translate it either way. And I call this the faltering church. And they had some good traits, but notice negatively what it says in Revelation 2.14. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There's a lot of churches like that today. They are married to the world. Leadership looks the other way when there's sin in the rank. Then you go another 40 miles southeast to Pergamum, to the church of Thyatira. This is a false church because they were corrupted internally by allowing false doctrine to unfold. Look at verse 20. Jesus spoke to them and he said, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. False doctrine always leads to a false corrupted life. 
What you believe always influences how you behave. And they let this woman in their local assembly take over with her error. If you travel another 30 miles southeast of Thyatira to Sardis, you come to a fruitless church, kind of a ho-hum spirit kind of church. Jesus spells it out here in chapter three. And in verse one, he said, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. There's a lot of churches like that in America today. They call themselves alive, but there's no real fruit, not the fruit of the Spirit. No life, no joy. Then you travel another 30 miles here on the map, southeast of Sardis, you come to Philadelphia. This is the faithful church. Remember, just two churches of which there's no rebuke. And Philadelphia would certainly be the kind of church we would want community Bible church to be like. Look at chapter three and verse eight. Jesus said, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power, which is not a downer, little as much if God's in it. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. So this church had an open door and they went through it. And he's describing, again, different kinds of churches during the church age. Finally, you come to the seventh church, about 50 miles southeast of Philadelphia, to Laodicea. And this is a fashionable church. They seemingly had it all. Wealthy, today, beautiful facilities, the nicest cars out in the parking lot, beautiful homes, wealthy saints. But they were wretched and miserable. Look at verses 15 and 16. Jesus said to them, I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now beginning in chapter 4, all the way through chapter two, uh, 22, John writes about the things which must take place after these things. After all the events just described in chapters two and three of those seven churches, now he projects out into the future. And he repeats it twice over so you can't miss it. And what we find in chapters four through 22 is the complete schematic of God's future prophetic schedule. After these things I looked, Behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here. Now we'll show you the things which must take place after these things. So as this chart shows, we've been in the church age, but the next great event on the schedule of God is the rapture of the church. The church is caught up. It's called the hapazo. And from the Latin translation, we get our English word rapture. And it's not by accident here in verse four of chapter four, you find these 24 elders. Why? Because during the time of the great tribulation, the evaluation seat for Christians takes place in heaven. And God judges our works based on our faithfulness. We did a whole message just on that coming judgment. And what do they do with their crowns? They don't wear them on their head braggadociously, but they take them and they cast them at the feet of Jesus and they worship him with it. And so John arrives in heaven and the scene here in chapter four underscored in verse three is a picture of God the Father on the throne. It's a courtroom kind of scene because God is preparing to judge all the inhabitants of the earth. 
And yet in the midst of this awesome scene, heaven is filled with praisers. And so there's a classification of angels called the four living creatures with the 24 elders who are representative of the body of Christ. And by the way, once that door is open to let the church in at the rapture, you do not see the church again until chapter 19 when Jesus comes back with his saints. So here in verse 11 of this chapter, they're praising God the Father on his throne, and they're saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. So they are acknowledging he is the unique, only God, the creator God. Therefore, he has the authority to judge the world. And so John is taken to heaven, and he is given this scene of what is about to happen. And so as we step here into chapter 5, we find the same throne room. Heaven, again, has been praising the Lord, and it's like John is given a front row seat, and we with him to see what God is going to do. Because life on earth is about to change really, really fast. It's going to get quite dark. Look at chapter five and verse one. A change takes place. I saw in the right hand of him, the father, who sat on the throne, a book, or literally a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now remember, we've already identified the one on the throne as God the Father in chapter four. And he has in his hand a scroll. Remember, there's no codexes books like we have them today. They hadn't been invented yet. Everything is on a scroll. We might call it a a book, but here's John, he is weeping because no one can open it. No one seems worthy to open this seven-scrolled book. And so in verse two, there's a question. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And then in verses three and four, a loud voice fills the whole universe and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. But then we learn in verse five that Jesus can open it. Notice, and the one and one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So chapter five reveals how Jesus has the title deed to the earth. Now remember, Adam initially had authority over the earth, but because he yielded to the sin of Satan, It was taken from man, and it was given to the evil one. And so in the temptation, when Satan said, bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, that was a real legitimate offer because Adam had lost it to Satan. But here's the Lord Jesus, because as this chapter will unfold, as the Redeemer with his own blood, he paid the price. The scroll is given to him. And so John stops weeping and heaven explodes with praise. Look at verses 12 and 13 here in chapter 5. Now they're giving the same ascriptions to the Father that they gave to the Son, for they are equal. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne, 
chapter 4, they worship the Father as the Creator. Here in chapter 5, they're worshiping Jesus as the Redeemer. Let everything give praise and glory to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So here they are worshiping the Lamb. And now as we step into chapter 6, as he begins to open this scroll, and we studied it in depth, how only one seal at a time can be seen. And one seal at a time is revealed. And so beginning in chapter 6, you see these seals unfolding, seven seal judgments, followed by seven trumpet judgments, followed by seven bold judgments. And if you miss that, you'll get lost and confused. And as we work through the great tribulation period, we saw how the sealed trumpet and bold judgments would unfold in series of seven. They're in consecutive order. For example, the trumpet judgments cannot happen until the seventh seal is broken. And the bold judgments cannot happen until the seventh trumpet is blown. And so as this slide shows, the first four seals are labeled as the four horsemen, popularly called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, Seal number one is the Antichrist. Seal number two is war. Seal number three is devastation. And seal number four is death. And so this term, the four horsemen, has become literally an idiom for the advent of wars and terrible events to happen. And so these seals are open, and these four riders ride out on different color horses. And God unleashes these four ghoulish, gruesome, ghastly riders who bring judgments to the world. The first four seals, again, the four horsemen, the fifth seal being martyrdom. And so, again, in the fourth four seals, you see uh, death and uh, the Antichrist and war and devastation and death. And then in the fifth seal, you see martyrdom. Who's being martyred? People who are converted during the tribulation. They're called saints, not church saints. They are tribulation saints who've been martyred for their faith. And then in the sixth seal, we studied cosmic changes. A number of cosmic changes happened during this seven-year period with the highlight of all the cosmic changes happening at the second coming. But initially, wonders that are taking place in the heaven. And then uh, between the sixth and the seventh seal, as you can see here, Revelation 7 tells you what's been going on during this time. And so John, using a typical Jewish style of writing, will sometimes unfold truth, and then he'll step back and tell you what was going on during that time. And that's what you have in the seventh chapter, this pause, so to speak, not in time, but a pause to reflect what has been happening during this time. And so we're told in Revelation 7 and verse 4, and I heard the number of those who are sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Who are these people? These are Jewish men who are converted after the rapture of the church, and they take the gospel to the whole world, and people who had never before heard the gospel in clarity and in power are converted by the millions. And so you learn of the fruit of their witness in verse 9 of chapter 7. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches in their hands. Now again, we studied in the tribulation that it divides into two halves. 
The first half is unfolded by Jesus, by Daniel, by John is three and a half years. The second half is three and a half years. And in the Olivet Discourse, we studied how the sealed judgments that happened in the first half of the tribulation with the trumpet and bowls in the second half, these sealed judgments perfectly parallel the birth pangs that Jesus describes. Here's a chart to help us to visualize it. The first rider on the white horse, he is a picture of false messiahs and the antichrist himself. The second rider on the red horse, he is a picture of the wars that are going to come like the world has never seen. The third rider on the black horse is a picture of famine, and so Jesus spoke of famines that will happen during this time like the world has never seen. The fourth seal is the pale horse of death, and so death from these wars, from these famines will be across the planet. Uh, Then Jesus speaks in Matthew 24, 9 and 10 about martyrs. And we just spoke of these who are in heaven waving palm branches who have been martyred during the time of the tribulation period. Then there are these cosmic changes as the six seal pictures. There's the worldwide preaching of the gospel. How will that happen? We've been trying to fulfill the Great Commission since the first century. These 144,000 Jewish men will preach the gospel during this time. This gospel of the kingdom, Jesus said, will go out to the whole world, and then the end, not the rapture, the second coming, will take place. And then right in the middle of this seven-year period, there's the abomination of desolation. When this antichrist goes into the temple, claims to be God, and when that happens, look out, everything changes. It goes from sealed judgments to a greater intensity. So we're not in the birth pangs yet. We're in a pregnancy. To have birth pangs, you have to have a pregnancy. But the birth pangs, clearly according to the Lord Jesus, do not start until this time of tribulation. And they get more and more and more intense, as we will see. Then you step into chapter 8, and it opens rather dramatically. Look at chapter 8 and verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And so here's a picture of the seven trumpet judgments. Remember, in the seventh seal, you see seven judgments, trumpet judgments. And in the seventh trumpet are contained seven bowls. Unlike the seals where you can see just one at a time, when the seventh seal is broken, you can see all seven trumpets. And in the seventh trumpet, you can see all seven bowls. And it's so intense, it's like, (gasps) silence in heaven for the space of 30 minutes. The place had been exploding with music and praise, but what they are looking at is so awesome. They're like holding their breath, their lips are sealed. Look at chapter 8 and verse 7, follow along. The first trumpet is sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, And they were thrown to the earth, and the third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. That's a judgment on vegetation that you cannot live without. Verse 8, the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So now God brings a judgment on a third of the seas which become blood, and a third of the creatures in the sea will die. 
And here's man who has worshiped the creation, especially in the last hundred years. They denied God as creator through evolution, and now there's a whole religion called green where men worship the creation, and God says, you want to worship? I'll show you who's in charge of the creation. Then in verse 10, the third angel sounds his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on a third of the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. Many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. This now is a judgment not on the salt waters, but on the freshwater rivers and all the freshwater sources, and they're made bitter, and a third of them are destroyed. Verse 12, the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. So John is telling us that God is gonna manipulate the celestial bodies above where they operate at a diminished rate. In essence, God is saying, you love darkness, I'm gonna give you a little darkness to meditate on. And these are people who are in rebellion. And so planet Earth will go from the normal cycles of light that we enjoy only to having eight hours of light each day. Look at chapter 8, verse 13. We hear this angel cry out, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpets, trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Basically, he's saying, if you think you've seen something, you haven't seen anything yet. Because what you're going to see in the last three trumpets and what's unfolded in the final trumpet, these seven bowls, it's nothing the world could ever, ever imagine. And so look at Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. He, this star, verse 1, one of the terms used to describe an angel, he, this star, opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit. The pit here is the word abusus. We sometimes speak of this place is the abyss. The pit was open like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Verse 3, then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth. Contextually, these are demons who come in the form of locusts, and power was given to them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. Look, at these are the worst of demons. A man may take a gun and try to put it to his head, but a demon won't let him pull the trigger. No one will even be able to commit suicide during this time. Now, if you're with us in our series, we saw that there are four principal places that demons will find themselves. There are those today who are in the heavenly realms, Daniel 10, Ephesians 6, or they are waging war against the church, against God's people. There's one class of demons we studied that are in Tartarus. They are in eternal chains because of a heinous, wicked sin that they committed during the time of Noah that Second Peter and Jude give us divine commentary on. Then there are those who are in the abyss. This is a certain class of demons that are like bad dudes. Remember on that day when Jesus is at Gadara and these two Gerardine demoniacs who are possessed, they plead, don't 
put us in the abyss. Why? Because if you're in the abyss, you have no freedom to wage war until this coming time that we just read. And then the final resting place of demons that we studied is the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. None are there yet. No one is there yet. But there's coming a day when they will be there. Then in verse 13, we, just, we studied the sixth trumpet being blown. And one angel releases four angels. And we're told here in, well, drop down to verse 15. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Those people who should have come to their senses did not. And so we read in verse 21, and they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. You know, we're seeing again the, just the shadows of the coming tribulation. It seems like every week that goes by, more people are being killed, more people are being robbed, more people are being raped and so forth. <laughs> it ain't nothing yet. When the church is removed and salt and light is gone, hell will have a holiday and the worst time in human history will unfold, but men did not repent of those things. This slide then shows us this next interlude. You'll see, again, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet are chapters 10 through 14. And again, God is giving us a picture, almost a double parenthesis, of what is unfolding upon the earth. In chapter 10, if you were here in this series, we studied the angel in the little book. And I want you to notice what the angel asked the apostle John to do. Look at verse 9. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. When I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. So John said the taste was both sweet and bitter because when we as believers are in glory with Jesus, it will be sweet, but those who are on the earth, it will be bitter. Christ deserves to receive the glory that is due his name, and we will be able to give it. It will be a sweet time, but it will be a time of absolute devastation for those who are left behind. Then in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 3, uh, before the seventh trumpet is blown, we learn of two witnesses. And these two witnesses, like the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, are used to share the gospel during the tribulation period for three and a half years, for 42 months. And their names, again, he's looking back to the first half of the tribulation. They're there in the first half, and their names, I suggested to you, were Moses and Elijah. You say, why do you say that? Well, number one, we know Elijah is going to return. The book of Malachi and the book of Matthew teach the second coming of Elijah the prophet. Malachi recorded these words, behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet, hundreds of years after he had been dead and gone to heaven, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And it's interesting to note in the verse before Malachi 4.4, that the prophet makes mention of Moses. And of course, Jesus himself said in Matthew 17, 11, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. John the Baptist came in the power and spirit of Elijah, but Elijah is coming and will restore all things. So it's interesting too that when Jesus wants to speak of his coming kingdom, which happens after this seven year period, he meets two men, Moses and Elijah, where on the Mount of Transfiguration to discuss this coming kingdom. And so while Christians may debate 
who these two men are, though these two men perfectly mimic the kinds of miracles and ministries that Moses and Elijah did, while they may debate as to who they are, no one can debate as to what they do. And they'll be murdered for preaching Jesus. Look at verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, that's Jerusalem, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Leaving their dead bodies there will be out of mockery, out of disdain, out of utter contempt for what these men did for preaching the gospel. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. They will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. This will be the devil's Christmas party. And they'll send gifts to one another. Our problems are over. Remember, the middle point has it had. He's looking back. Our problems are over. They watch them. The cameras of the world are focused on them. Their bodies get hard. They get stiff. They begin to bloat. They begin to turn colors. But after the three and a half days, verse 11, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. They stand at their feet, and the party's over, and you know they're in shock and dismay. Verse 12, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. I love it, this loud voice from heaven, much like a loud voice outside the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. Come up here. And there they go. The cameras of the world will be focused on them, and the world will be in shock. God is giving them a picture, and God sends these angels to come and carry them there. You know, when you die, I mentioned it a few weeks ago at a funeral, you never die alone. God always sends some of his holy angels, as pictured in Luke 16, to carry you into heaven. My wife and I found great comfort in that truth when our granddaughter passed that she didn't die alone in that crib at 21 months old. The angels of God carried her directly into God's presence. And so these two men, they go to heaven on a dream liner. They go in the clouds. And what God is doing is reenacting the rapture. Their bodies are translated in a moment's time. This is what had happened some years before. Maybe they'll comprehend it. Maybe they won't. Then the seventh trumpet is blown in verse 15. However, between Revelation 11 and 15, when the seventh trumpet is sounded, which again will bring about the seven bowls described in chapter 16, there's some more intervening chapters. And just like chapter 7 was an interlude, chapters 10 to 14, they don't represent an interlude of time. They are giving an explanation of what has been happening during this time. And again, as you can see on this chart, the trumpet judgments start at the midpoint in the 70th week, seven years of tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. And right in the middle of those seven years, as Daniel the prophet affirms, as Paul the apostle teaches, as Jesus said, this one world leader will go into a temple and he'll claim to be God. And so during the first half, there's religion. It's the religion of the harlot. It's a one world eclectic religion. And one of the messages in this series is the great religious reset. And we saw the popes of Rome who have been gathering for several decades and most recently in Kakistan just last November. Hundreds of world leaders from across the planet who are religious heads. Remember, this one world religion is going to be headquartered, the Bible says, on a city built on seven hills. 
I suspect it will be Rome. Not that the Pope is the Antichrist, but he could certainly be the one world leader. He has a false religion. He denies salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Nonetheless, initially in the first three and a half years, all religions will be one. They'll all be represented, the Hindu, the Buddhist, you name it. You, you, you want to meditate on your belly button. You can do whatever you want to do, but in the middle point, everything changes. He'll go into the temple of God and claim to be God, and now there's one religion. It's the religion of the Antichrist himself. And so in 1115, before we get to the seven trumpets that start in chapter 16, we get this second parenthesis of sorts where we're introduced to seven critical key players during the time of the tribulation. And so in chapters 12 through 14, seven major players who are basically, God is pulling back the curtain and giving you a behind-the-scenes view of who they are and where they came from. So again, please understand the sequential order of the seal and the trumpet and the bold judgments does not negate this review of events that is happening. And so chapter 12, turn to chapter 12, he goes back and he picks up some more details before the seven bowls of wrath. And he highlights Satan in his incessant persecution against Israel and against the people of God. He's always been against the people of God. We studied a fall of Satan in chapter 12 and verse 4 when his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. When Satan rebelled, a third of all of God's holy demons went with him. And if you remember in that chapter of Scripture, the woman is the nation of Israel who um, gives the child who is the Lord Jesus, and Satan is against the child, the Lord Jesus, from the start. And it results in this great war that again is in the future during the tribulation. Look at verse seven. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and the, his archangels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon, his, his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Who is the great dragon? The serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So Satan and his demons have a war in heaven with Michael and his angels. The holy angels went out and for the first time ever, Satan is cast out of the heavenly realms and literally he's on the planet with his demons he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And they will attempt, especially during this time, to wipe out Israel. And so here's another slide if you're with us in the series. We studied the six stages of Satan's career. There was one time when he was the anointed cherub leading praise and worship in heaven, a magnificent angel. But then Lucifer became Satan. We usually think of the word Lucifer as a dark name. That was actually his unfallen name. That was his holy name. But Lucifer became Satan. Why? Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, and the passage we just read, the devil wanted to usurp the place of God. And then there's coming a time when he will fall out of the heavenly realms, literally physically to the earth during the tribulation, here in the second half of the tribulation. Then Satan restri will be restricted for a thousand years at the abyss. When Jesus comes back at the second coming, he'll take the devil and put him in the abyss for a period of time. Then as the next slide shows, stage five of his career, he's released at the end of the thousand years. We'll see why in a few moments. And then finally stage six, 
the devil will go to hell. The devil's never been in hell. People think, oh, the devil's in hell. He's never been in hell. He's not even in current day hell, Hades. He's not in the lake of fire yet. This is still in the future. This is going to happen. Then chapter 13, we're introduced to two key players, the Antichrist and the false prophet, who will capture the hearts of millions, perhaps billions of people. When men reject the truth, what do they do? They believe a lie. Look at chapter 13, verse 4. They worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act 42 months was given to him. And so powerful will these two be, the chapter closes in verse 16, saying, And he causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for the number is that of a man and his number is 666. And so we studied this coming great economic reset. It will happen during this time. No one will be able to buy or sell anything. I think some presets are unfolding in our day, getting the world ripe for it. Perhaps uh, this uh, digital money that people are wanting to utilize that they're actually using in some cities in China or exclusively in the Bahamas. And our own president issued an executive order for our nation to study it. And at the World Economic Forum last May, 114 countries discussed it in great detail. All it will take is one major economic implosion for a great economic reset, where you go to a digitized form of money. Then chapter 14 opens with John seeing Jesus, the Messiah, on Mount Zion. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his name in the name of his Father written on their foreheads. So John now looks into the future. He sees these 144,000 whose ministry is now complete. They have preached the gospel worldwide, and where are they standing? They're standing with Jesus on Mount Zion. Where's that? The Temple Mount. And so we studied this future temple that God is yet to build. And the Temple Mount won't look like it looks today, but it will be from that place that Jesus will ultimately reign. And then beginning in verses 6 through 11, we find three angels that are called by God to preach three messages so that men and women still might repent. Now, please understand, we, under, we, we learned that during the church age, angels don't preach the gospel. An angel might get someone to tell them where they can get the gospel, like in Acts chapter 10, but angels don't preach the gospel. The only people God has ever used to preach the gospel are those who are redeemed by grace. But there's coming a day when God's modus operandi will change. God will use 144,000 Jews, two witnesses who will minister from the Temple Mount, and I suspect they will teach the meaning of the temple and all of its sacrifices and how they all point to Yeshua. And then God will use three angels. It's going to be absolutely amazing because they will preach an eternal gospel. And so in the coming day, the gospel will be preached by these three groups. Chapter 14 crescendos by introducing us to the uh, battle of Armageddon or the war of Armageddon, we might say. Look at verse 18. Then... Another angel, the one who has the power over fire, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice 
to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. That's the length of Israel. We'll see in a moment. This is the battle of Armageddon that Jesus is gonna put an end to at his second coming. And there'll be so much blood-soaked grass in earth that just as a horse gallops across a muddy field and has mud up to its bridles, so there will be blood up to the horse's bridle here at this time. Chapter 15 then introduces us to the seven golden bowls of wrath with seven angels involved in revealing these bowls are also called plagues. Look at verse one. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues which are the last because in them the wrath of God is taleo. It's finished. It's paid in full as it were. The wrath of God during the tribulation time will have been satisfied with these last plagues. And so chapter 15 refers to the bulls and the last plagues because once they are executed, the wrath of God is finished and it's time for Jesus to come back. Chapter 16 gives us the specific nature of these plagues and how intense they are. And again, there's an intensification that takes place like a woman in labor. It starts with the seal judgments. And as you read through the seal judgments, how much of the world is affected? A fourth. You step into the trumpet judgments. How much is affected? A third. But when you come to the bold judgments, they affect the entire planet. The world is in full labor waiting for Jesus. And so again, here's a chart helping us to see the relationship between these judgments. And the seventh seal is contained seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet is contained the seven bowls of God's wrath. And here's a picture of those seven bowls of wrath. The first bowl in verse two is described as a loathsome, loathsome and malignant sore and the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image. And so these are people who are suffering physically. They had already rejected peace with God. They chose to serve the Antichrist. And God only allows it to fall on them. And he's giving, I think, a picture, maybe for still some unrepentant people, of their need to call upon Jesus for salvation. And their great Antichrist won't be able to save them from this any more than he'll be able to save them from the coming eternal wrath. Verse three tells us of the second bowl resulting in the sea becoming, notice, blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Look, billions of people live off the sea every single day, but now there will be starvation and stench beyond all imagination. Verse four tells us of the third bowl of wrath. Notice, God poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. Now every single source of fresh water is gone. Your well will be blood, your rivers will be blood, your lakes will be blood, the bottled water will soon run out. They say man can live quite a number of days without food, but on average a man can only go about a week without water. Down in verse eight, the fourth bowl is poured out where the sun is so hot 
that men feel a burning from it? Do they repent? No, they blaspheme the living God. Look at verse 10. We learn then of the fifth bowl where we are told, and the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and on his kingdom became darkened, and they nod their tongues because of pain. Can you imagine that? You ever bite your tongue? I mean, I've only been in intense, excruciating pain once in my life when I got my arm caught in a lawnmower. Ah, I was gnawing my tongue. That's what you want to do. You're doing everything to try to somehow process in your mind the pain that you're in. They nod their tongues because of pain. They blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So this signals that death is now coming to the planet, the sixth bowl. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way might be prepared for the kings of the earth. For that final world war, so to speak, this superhighway is provided as the Euphrates is dried up and the kings of the east come out. And we read in verse 13, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. We might say it from the lying mouth of Satan, from the lying mouth of the Antichrist, from the lying mouth of his false prophet, from this unholy trinity will come deception. And where are they going? They're going to the Jezreel Valley. Some of you have stood at Harmageddon, that elevated mountain of sorts. You can see the Jezreel Valley where a man will line up the nations of the world to march on Jerusalem. Then the seventh bowl is poured out, described here in verse 16 and verse 20. We're told that there's lightning and thunder, and then in verses 20 and 21, and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because of its plague was extremely severe. Now, God intends with this judgment not only to punish mankind, but to prepare the world for the second coming. The planet initially is being prepared. God is going to make it much like it was before the great fall and before the time of Noah's flood. And then in chapters 17 and 18, two important questions are asked and answered. In chapter 17, it asks, what is the religion during the tribulation? And again, in the first half, there will be the religion of the harlot in contrast of the bride of Christ where you have this one world religion, so to speak, made up of all these multiplicity of false religions. But then in the second half, there will be a singular religion of the Antichrist. And so in chapter 17 and verse 6, it says, and I saw the woman, the harlot, this false church, drunk with the blood of the saints. What are they doing? They're killing those Christians. They're killing tribulation saints. The tribulation saints are saying, call on Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the one who alone can forgive your sin. We don't want to hear it. They're drunk with the blood of the saints, of the witnesses of Jesus, because that's what saints do. They witness. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And so in chapter 17, you see the harlot rides the Antichrist. They're linked together. And it's not by accident that the European common market, or whatever title it now has, their symbol is a woman on a beast. Remember, it is from this region of the world, Western Europe, from a 10-nation coalition that an 11th diminutive king is going to come up and serve as the Antichrist. 
And so verse 16 now teaches the beast, with the support of his 10 kings, will hate the harlot, the false religious system that is built on seven hills, the Bible teaches, and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. In other words, you either worship me or you don't worship Paul. Then chapter 18 asks and answers another question. What will be the governmental climate? What will be the economic climate during this seven-year period? And again, you discover that the economies of the world are linked together. And I have no doubt that our government wants to see our economy implode. Not not many people, but there are people in our government who want to see it implode. Why? Because of their socialistic dreams. And if the government implodes economically, you have a perfect setting for a coming one world economy. This is not the reset. The reset happens as I discussed in these sermons. I did a sermon on the religious reset, the governmental reset, and the economic reset. It will happen during the time of the Great Tribulation, but the stage is being set. There are presets that are unfolding, and there will be this one world government that is connected. And so the presidents and the kings and the prime ministers of the world, they will see their glorious city from which the Antichrist rules destroyed. And so you read in verse 10, whoa, whoa, chapter 18, whoa, whoa, the great city Babylon, the strong city For in one hour, your judgment has come to the earth. Now, chapter 19. It opens up with four hallelujahs in verses 1, 3, and 4. And in verse 6, we're given the source of their praise. Notice, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Now, as this next slide shows, during this time of the tribulation, that the bride of Christ is made ready. We're at the Bema seat. We're being clothed according to our rewards in heaven. You're saved by grace alone, but you're rewarded for your service, which is also done by grace. As you yield to the grace of God moment by moment and allow the Spirit to fill you, He'll reward you for it someday. And the marriage of the Lamb will happen in heaven. Then He will come back at the second coming and we will ride with Him. And the marriage supper will take place on the earth, because it will include all those who are resurrected at the second coming, which will be tribulation saints as we studied, and Old Testament saints, and all the church saints, and we will sit down, not in some dreamy cloud-like picture as it's often rendered, but the Lord's Supper will take place on the earth. Oh, it's going to be absolutely magnificent. Look at verse 11 here of chapter 19. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he, that's Jesus, who sat on it, is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, that's us, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's at this time when we ride back with him, there's this massive battle of the nations of the world going against Jerusalem and Jesus will smush all the armies in a split second. Then I saw, verse 17, an angel standing in the sun, 
And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, All the birds which fly in midheaven, come assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, the small and the great, none are excluded. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So if you know this chapter, we studied it in great detail. There are two great suppers, two great banquets in chapter 19. There's the marriage, great marriage supper of the lamb that takes place on the earth. But there's also what's called here the great supper of God. At one supper, there's a sense of great joy and blessing. At the other supper, there's great sorrow. Those who believe in Jesus will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who have rejected him will be the supper. They will be eaten by birds. Now, verse 20, and the beast, that's the Antichrist, was seized. And with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. So Christ rides back from heaven. We're behind him. He smushes the armies of the Armageddon. He takes the beast. He takes his false prophet. And the first two recipients to go into the lake of fire are these two. Now, again, we have distinguished all the way through this series as this next chart shows the difference between the rapture and the second coming. The rapture will meet the Lord in the air. He'll catch us up in the air. The second coming, Jesus comes to the earth. He stands on the Mount of Olives. At the rapture, Christ comes for his people. At the second coming, angels will come for the lost to remove them. At the rapture, his people are removed from earth to heaven. I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am, where are you, Jesus? In heaven, you'll be there too. Where at the second coming, the lost are removed from earth, where? Into Hades, the current place of judgment. At the rapture, Jesus comes before the hour of trial that will come on the earth. The second coming, he comes at the end of the hour of trial. At the rapture, there's no signs. It's always been imminent. It could happen at any moment. Whereas the second coming, there's all kinds of prophecies that have taken place, that are taking place in our day, and that will take place after the church is removed. It's a prophetically driven event. The rapture, the resurrection takes place when Christ comes in the air. We shall all be changed. This mortality will put on immortality. This perishable put on the imperishable. We're at the second coming. A resurrection takes place after Christ descends to the earth. Who's raised? Tribulation saints who died during the time of the great tribulation. And that's when Daniel 12, 1 and 2, all Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the Old Testament saints are raised at the second coming. At the rapture, believers are alive and they receive glorified bodies in the twinkling of an eye. Or at the second coming, believers who are alive at his return, who survived the tribulation, they enter into the millennial reign in their natural bodies. And the curse will be lifted in some respect off of the creation. And we went through six reasons God had for the thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. And of course, we read further, uh, then I saw an angel coming from heaven. I'm in chapter uh, 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. This is at the second coming. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss 
and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So Satan is locked away in the abyss, in this prison, verse seven. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And so during this thousand year reign of the Messiah, there will be unparalleled peace and blessing, no freedom of interference from the evil one whatsoever. He will be in the abyss during this period of time. But then notice verse eight, he's released from his prison and he will come out to deceive the nations. Who is he going to deceive? The only way you either erase the plain reading of Scripture and you just say that ex we're all just going to heaven, saved and the lost are separated, that's the amillennialists. Or just like God fulfilled the first coming, literally, actually, for every prophecy, he will fulfill the prophecies for the second coming. And the only way to understand this is a pre-tribulational rapture. Why? Because those who enter in the millennium during the reign of Christ in their natural bodies will be able to have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And not all of them with Jesus literally ruling on the earth will respond. It will be a picture of how depraved man can be. And Satan, when he's been bound for a thousand years, will be released for a short time. And what will he do? He'll deceive the nations which are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And so we studied in this series three great wars. The first war, it's called the Battle of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's a war that has never taken place in human history. It will involve Russia, Iran, Turkey, Ethiopia, and Libya. And so you see these five nations even today working together as chums. Nations that a decade ago hated each other while they're working together. This will happen after the rapture of the church. At the end of the seven-year period, the battle of Armageddon, where not five nations, but all the nations of the world go against Israel. But then at the end of the millennium, there's this third and final battle that is described that we studied in great detail. Verse nine, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them, just like at Armageddon. So there will be rebellion, but Christ will squash it, verse 10. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown in the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are also, because they're not annihilated. Hell is forever. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that brought us to the final judgment of all time, the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. We saw it was Jesus, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Without stammer or stutter, God lays it down, verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so if someone is cast into the lake of fire, it is their own fault. Why? Because they rejected Jesus. God doesn't want anyone to go to the lake of fire. He didn't even make it for them. Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. God didn't make the lake of fire for man. He made it for the devil and his angels. And if someone goes there and met, they refuse the second birth that they needed by the grace of God. Notice how the book comes to a conclusion, chapter 22, the final invitation. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. And then in verses 18 and 19, this final warning, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, 
God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. And then the very final words of Jesus ever spoken, ever recorded, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly. And he gives assurance for those of us who are reading it to press on. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly. And John says, amen, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all, amen. And so while we wait, not only are we saved by grace, we need to be sustained by the grace of God. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the book of Revelation. And that, my brothers and sisters, is God's future prophetic schedule. Now maybe you disagreed with me on some of the finer points. But I can tell you this, while you may differ on some minute points, we all agree he is coming back. Johnny went off to war. They thought he was dead. Then they found out he was alive and they were awaiting his return. The family literally got into an argument. I think he's coming by on the bus. We need to go out of the bus station. Someone else said, he's going to come in on the train. We need to meet him at the train station. Someone else said, he's coming to the airport. And they went into this discussion. And someone said, well, what's the discussion? Oh, they're arguing how he's going to come back. And then suddenly the door opens and it's Johnny. Right in the midst of their debate, Johnny walks in. And I've been teaching you for 13 months on God's future prophetic schedule. And I can tell you, while you may differ on the details, he has gone to prepare a place for us. And he's coming again for those who know him, for those who've been born again. And if you don't know Christ, you can know him. He is willing to receive you. He is willing to forgive you of every blot and stain and vestige of sin you've ever committed. But you must come in humility, admitting those things are wrong, that they need forgiveness. But if you don't know him, when he comes back for his church to take us to heaven, you will, in the end, end up in an awful place called hell. He is coming back. The question is, is he coming back for you? Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to study these great truths that you gave the grace to walk through this incredible series of events that you have unfolded for us in your word. I pray today for someone listening to this message, maybe live streaming, maybe listening to it later. Help them to know that Christ loves them, that he died in their place, that he was raised for them, that if they will come in humility and faith and trust the one who bore their, his, their, our sins in his body, that you will save them immediately and forever. Father, for those of us who know you, you have given us your prophetic word so that we might not be scared, but that we might be prepared, that we might be ready, that we might be living for Jesus not caught up in the vain and empty things of life, but having our eye on eternity. Thank you for the blessed hope that will someday unfold, that we need not despair with the events of our day, that you are sovereign and in absolute control, and things are unfolding according to your plan. We bless you for those truths in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? 
we'll sing a hymn of invitation. Maybe somebody, you, you have a decision to make. You've received Christ and you've never made it public. Or you've received Christ, you've never been baptized as a symbol of your salvation. Or you're saved and baptized, but you need a church home. You may be in Grays and Graniteville where we've seen a number of decisions recently. I want to invite you to leave your seat. Someone's down there in front of that auditorium to greet you. And if you're here and you have a decision to make, I want to invite you to step out and meet me here in the front.